Hi, thank you for listening to this message brought to you by First Baptist Church. Here at FBC, it's our mission to lead people into a growing relationship with Jesus Christ, and we hope that this message helps you continue to grow in your faith. This audio is property of First Baptist Church, but feel free to give away copies of this message in the hopes that others will be impacted by what they hear. For more information about FBC, or if you want to stay connected with us, visit our website at fbclloyd.ca or look us up on Facebook and Instagram. Thanks, and enjoy the latest from FBC. Good morning, everyone. So, so cool again to see everyone out this morning, and um, just awesome to have some child dedications and to be just getting back into the rhythm of church with y'all, and, and um, so I'm just, I, I'm just thrilled. Uh, great to see you, happy that you're here, and uh, excited that we're in Hebrews today, and we're going to get uh, right at it this morning because uh, obviously we've had a little bit more time in some other areas, and we've got a bit of ground to cover this morning as we hit Hebrews chapter 8. So as we begin Hebrews chapter 8, we're going to see that now over the next two chapters of Hebrews, the author is going to expand on the idea of the high priesthood of Christ through these two chapters. And he's going to expand on that in three different ways. He's going to expand on it in terms of the the sanctuary. He's going to expand on it in terms of the covenant. And then he's going to expand on it also in terms of sacrifice. This morning, we're going to see, uh, cover off the first two of those areas. We're going to cover off the sanctuary and we're going to cover off the covenant. Pastor Bruce is going to come along on Good Friday, this coming Friday, and he's going to talk about Christ's sacrifice and uh, the high priesthood of God through that sacrifice. So this morning though, well and over the next couple weeks, we're going to, or the next couple uh, services, we're going to find this is happening. So first of all, we're going to see that the old sanctuary of the tabernacle has been replaced now and supplanted by the true sanctuary of heaven. Secondly, we're going to see that the temporal and ineffective covenant of the law has been replaced by a new covenant in Christ. And then thirdly, we're going to find that the... uh, temporal and and ineffective animal sacrifices that were offered under the law have now been superseded by Christ's one permanent and effective sacrifice. So that's what you can look forward to. This morning we're going to dive in though right from the beginning and get to these first two of those uh, three things. So if you'd turn with me in your Bibles, and I was really encouraged this week I had somebody... uh, email me and just uh, show me a Bible that they had picked up, um, and just, they, they'd been doing some research and had bought a Bible, and man, just that, I don't, you don't know how much that encourages me when I get some of those types of emails. Way to go, um, and, and I just want to encourage you again, get a Bible. Uh, I, like, I mean, your phones are great, iPads are awesome, what have you, on the screen is handy, but get your own Bible, take notes, uh, keep those things handy, because the in, in, at one point, at some point, they might become our primary areas and opportunities to, to follow along with God through his word. So uh, don't miss out on that. Okay, so anyways, chapter 8, Hebrews chapter 8, beginning in verse 1. We're going to look through the first five verses, and then we'll carry on to 6, and then 7 through to the end of 13. Now the main point of what we are saying is this. 
we do have such a high priest who sat down at the right hand of, of the throne of the majesty in heaven and who serves in the sanctuary, the true tabernacle set up by the Lord, not by, mere human, by a mere human being. Every high priest is appointed to offer both gifts and sacrifices, and so it was necessary for this one also to have something to offer. If he were on earth, he would not be a priest, for there are, are already priests who offer the gifts prescribed by the law. They serve at a sanctuary that is a copy and shadow of what is in heaven. This is why Moses was warned when he was about to, to build the tabernacle, see to it that you make everything according to the pattern shown you on the mountain. Let's pray. Father, this morning as we come to your word and as you speak into your lives, I pray that by your spirit now that you would move and work in us, that you would open our hearts and our minds, that we would understand you better, that we would see your word more fully, that we would be um, encouraged, that we would be enthused, that our faith would grow as we understand what you have done for us through your son Christ. And so to that end now, I pray and I dedicate this time and I ask for your blessing upon it, all in Christ's name and for his sake alone. Amen. All right. So now, despite the fact that we've come to a new chapter in our Bibles, if you will, the author here is continuing on with his case for Christ, as it were. So this isn't something new here. This is the continuation. So don't forget that. And he, what he does right off the hop here is he states for us his main point of his exposition that he's just given us in the previous chapter, in chapter 7. And so his main point was namely that the characteristics of the new priesthood and high priest in the order of Melchizedek is fulfilled in Jesus. So the characteristics of this new priesthood and of the high priest in the order of Melchizedek are fulfilled in Jesus. And so as he comes to that, he's got Jesus here in full focus. He wants his audience then reading and us now today as well in full focus on Christ as we move forward. And with that established then, what the author does is he continues to build his case for Christ in terms of directing our attention to now where Christ is ministering as our high priest where he's carrying out his priestly work, if you will. So here, three things to note quickly. Now, and as we go into this chapter, like we could go through this chapter and we could spend a whole bunch of time on each of these areas and they open up and they go down a bunch of different roads. But we're going to try and move through the whole chapter this, in this one service. So we're going to hit main, the main thoughts, if you will. So three things here that he points out with respect to now where Christ is ministering. Number one, he points out that after offering himself as our perfect sacrifice, then Christ sat down at the right hand of the majesty, which is just another word for God. The Jewish people tried to avoid using God's name because it was so holy. So majesty would have been understood by the people as, as the author talking specifically about God the Father. Secondly, the author draws to our attention that Jesus is now serving. In some of your Bibles, it might be ministering, that he is now ministering. And then thirdly, he specifies 
that Christ is serving in the true sanctuary, the true tabernacle, which is in heaven. Okay, so those three things. Now, with respect, well, I'm going to just stop and go back and look at each of these things in a little bit more specificity. Uh, and so we'll unpack that and expand on that a little bit. With respect to Christ having a seat now at the right hand of God, on that point, we are to note here the contrast between Christ's ministry and that of the Levitical priesthood, if you will. Okay, so there's a distinct difference in what Christ did after he finished his sacrifice. He sat down. Now, and not only sat down, but sat down in the presence of God himself. So from that, we're to understand and to note a couple of things. The old high priest would have gone into the Holy of Holies and he had to stand in the presence of God. And it was very briefly. And then he had to, in short order, return again to continue his work of sacrifice because it wasn't over. But here the author of Hebrews is pointing out that first of all, Christ offered his sacrifice and sat down. That it was finished. Second of all, that he remained in the presence of God. That he didn't then exit the Holy of Holies. He didn't exit the true sanctuary, but that he remains there now as well. And thirdly, that there is no repeating of the sacrifice. That he had finished that, accomplished that. There needed to be no further sacrifices. So as we come to this first point, the author wants, to under, wants us to understand that Christ's sacrificial work is accomplished and he remains now in the presence of God. Secondly, as the author refers to Christ's service, he is no longer then referring to Christ's sacrificial work, that being accomplished, but rather he is referring to the other aspects of priestly service or duty, okay? So that would entail things like making intercession for the people. That was one of the, the roles of the priest was that he would make intercession for the people. Number two, second thing, would be that he would serve as an example to the people of God. Thirdly, that he would then also teach and guide the people in the ways of God. And so this is the service now that the author points us to that Christ is performing, all right? There's no more sacrificial work required. Note the past tense of verse 3. That's done. That was required but is no longer required. It's not an ongoing requirement. It's not a future requirement. He had to offer a sacrifice, past tense. And Bruce is going to, again, focus on this next week. But the remaining work of the priest is ongoing in Christ for you and I today. Now, so oftentimes we understand that when we've accomplished a job, then, then we sit down and we rest. When we are also, when we are at that level, if you will, where we have, if you, if you uh, were to think of it in terms of our hierarchy, the higher up we go then, the more that we have the ability to step back and be finished, and then just watch it go. The boss comes in, gives the directions, and then everybody else starts to work. 
But here, the author wants us to understand that Christ has finished his sacrificial work, but he continues on the benefit, for the benefit of you and I today in the rest of his priestly work. This high priest of ours didn't sit down to rest. This high priest of ours now has taken on his next, the, the remaining roles of his high priesthood and is approaching those with diligence and with, with um, excellence as he carries those out on our behalf. The role of the high priest was to represent God to the people, but also the people to God. And so Christ continues to do that for you and I today in the presence of God. Thirdly, Christ ministers in the true sanctuary of heaven, in the presence of God, and in the sanctuary built by God. And so as the author outlines that for us, as he makes special note of that and just makes, highlights it in his text, in his communication to his audience, we're to understand then that the imitation, the inadequate shadow, if you will, or replica of the sanctuary in, in the tabernacle and even then in the temple has been replaced by God working or by Christ working in the true sanctuary now of heaven. We're to understand that this initial sanctuary, the initial tabernacle that was built by frail hands, by human hands, has been replaced by a sanctuary built by God himself. And lastly, that now as Christ ministers in the true sanctuary, he's ministering in a, a sanctuary that is not limited by the confines of man or by the confines of space and time. And so as we understand then those things, we, ex we, we recognize that this is a superior sanctuary. In verse 4, the author makes clear that Christ's superior priesthood is exercised in heaven and not on earth because he clearly did not fit the requirements of the Levitical priesthood. So he wants his audience and us again to recognize that there's, there's not a duplicity of priesthoods going on where the Levitical priesthood continues and Christ is now operating a different one, but that again, that he didn't fit that role. This other role now, this role in the, in, in, the, in the order of Melchizedek has supplanted that role of the Levitical priesthood. And because he didn't come out of that order that he now operates in a different sanctuary, the sanctuary, the true sanctuary that's in heaven. And so he elevates him to that level. In verse 5, then also, the author sort of, again, compounds this point by quoting Exodus chapter 25 verse 40 where God instructs Moses that he is to very carefully build the tabernacle according to the pattern, according to the plan that God had set out for him on the mountain when he gave him those instructions. And the point here again is that God did not leave the tabernacle to chance. He didn't say just turn them loose and say, hey, go build a tabernacle, go build a sanctuary but that he gave them very specific instructions. That God had something in mind 
That he wanted it to be significant in the eyes of the people because it was pointing to what was coming yet. A better sanctuary. The sanctuary that would be in heaven. The true sanctuary. So he wanted this to stand out, and it definitely did. The sanctuary, the tabernacle was amazing. It was a beautiful thing. But it was still, nevertheless, a shadow of what was coming. But nevertheless, there, a foreshadow of what would be the true sanctuary in heaven. Okay. So now, having addressed these things, having spoken now specifically to where Christ is ministering, combining that now with what he'd unpacked in chapter 7, now we see Christ fully in the order of Melchizedek, if you will. All right? Christ is king of kings because he sat down with God the Father in heaven. And he is also high priest of God most high. Just as Melchizedek was a priest of God, now we see Jesus as high priest of God. And as Melchizedek was king of Salem, but just Salem. Now we see God, Jesus as God, king of kings, sovereign over the kings of earth. Infinitely then, infinitely then, more significant and more effective than the Levitical priests. Fully and completely in the order of Melchizedek, but of whom Melchizedek could only serve as a clue or a hint because Christ far surpassed him as well. In this then, in this then, the author communicates to us that Jesus Christ is the ultimate king of righteousness and that he is the complete and true king of peace because he came and offered lasting peace for man with God. Don't miss who the author is pointing to in Christ today. Our faith stands on Jesus Christ and who he is. Without him being who he is presented to be in the scripture, he is nothing, he is Im, Im, he's moot, immaterial. But when we understand who Jesus Christ is, now we understand our call to follow him. And for such a one as him, for such a one as Christ then, a new covenant is required. A superior covenant over the old covenant. A superior covenant in keeping with Christ as our superior high priest and king. So carrying on then to verse 6. But in fact, the ministry Jesus has received is superior to theirs as the covenant of which he is mediator is superior to the old one since the new covenant is established on better promises. Okay, so just quickly here. You'll see that whereas before in chapter 7 Christ was presented as the guarantor of this coming new covenant. 
that now the author also unpacks him and, and, and reveals him as the mediator of this covenant, which is to some extent what he's just been talking about. That again, Christ is representing God to us and also us to God. He's mediating this covenant. He's ensuring that what is required of God for this covenant is met. And at the very same time, he's, re- he's ensuring that what the people need before God is completed. So that the two can mesh and so that the covenant can be complete. Carrying on then, verse 7. For if there had been nothing wrong with that first covenant, no place would have been sought for another. But God found fault with the people and said, The days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the people of Israel and with the people of Judah. It will not be like the covenant I made with their ancestors when I took them by the hand to lead them out of Egypt because they did not remain faithful to my covenant. And I turned away from them, declares the Lord. This is the covenant I will establish with the people of Israel after that time, declares the Lord. I will put my laws in their minds and write them on their hearts. I will be their God and they will be my people. No longer will they teach their neighbor or say to one another, Know the Lord, because they will all know me. From the least of them to the greatest. For I will forgive their wickedness and will remember their sins no more. By calling this covenant new, then the author says, he has made the first one obsolete. And what is obsolete and outdated will soon disappear. All right. So buckle up. We're going to try and rock it through these last few verses, and there's a lot to cover here, even in a general overview. First of all, note that the author, as it comes to this new covenant, doesn't just begin to dream it up himself. Instead, what he does is he goes back once more to the Old Testament, as he's been doing regularly throughout this book. So for a definition, for an understanding of this new covenant, he goes back back to the Old Testament. And specifically, he goes back to Jeremiah, who is writing of this upcoming, this new covenant, about 600 years earlier. And he was writing about it in Jeremiah chapter 31, verses 31 to 34. And so that's what's quoted then thereafter by this author in Hebrews. This is the longest quotation of the Old Testament in the New Testament. Note once again, note once again, that is, the author of Hebrews goes back to the Old Testament, then he is again leaving a trail for us to follow to God. He's not dreaming up something new. This isn't some change. But this is what God has been pointing through, down through time, so that you and I could find Him. Evidence, if you will, a trail, so that we can follow that to Him. These pieces of the puzzle to, to Christ. And then find salvation through him. Don't forget that. Secondly, we need to understand this morning that covenant would be very important to the Jewish people that he was writing to at the time. Covenant was very important to the Jewish people. The covenant would have been ingrained in their minds. They would have been taught about the covenant. Particularly as it came to the covenant, then between God and man. That would have been ingrained in them. They would have been taught about that from 
childhood. It's very important to the Jewish people. And it serves us well to understand the words that are used now here in Scripture that we translate as covenant. There was a couple of options. One of them that could have been used to, to translate as covenant was a word by the name of Sathiki. Sathiki. And it was regarded as a general agreement, if you will. It was where two parties came together and they made an agreement or a covenant. And it was negotiated. So each party would sit down and they would hammer it out. What are you going to do? What am I going to do? Do we agree to these things? Yes, we do. All right, then that's good. We've, we've formalized the covenant. And if one of the parties were to break it in either way, or some way, then the whole covenant was null and void. But that's not the word that's used here in Scripture to understand or define covenant. They use a different word here. The author uses a different word. It's called diatheki or diatheki. And this is a whole different concept for covenant. It's more in keeping with the idea of a will. Okay? And this was a covenant that was established usually by one party, a superior party, on the part of a beneficiary. All right? So this one party would decide then that they were going to enact a covenant for the benefit of someone else. The parameters of it were all on the initial first party. They were the ones that established it. And so there was not a negotiation going on here. This was all by the initiative of the first, the former, for the benefit of the latter, the other person, okay? So there's no negotiation. The only thing that could be done then was by the recipient, if you will, the benefactor of the covenant, all their choice would be in it was whether or not they would accept it or reject it. And this is the word, this is what we see here as we see this new covenant. It was a covenant initiated by God and we see that that old covenant was just the same as God refers back, as Jeremiah refers back to God leading the children out of Israel because he took their hand. He initiated that. He reached out and took their hand and led them out of Israel and then brought to them a new covenant at that time, the first old covenant, the old covenant of the law. But here again now we see God initiating this one as well again. Now there's a couple things that we need to understand here from this. In, in our day and age, I think we've gotten lost a little bit on this, and it needs, needs to be pointed out. First of all, we do not dictate to God. We do not negotiate with God. All right, as a peer. God has initiated this covenant with us, and he remains then the superior party in this arrangement. Nowadays, we've, we've so often brought God down to our level we think of him as a friend, and in that's indeed true. We have an opportunity to be friends with God, but we will never be his peer. He will always be superior to us, and we have to keep that in mind. We have to keep that in mind, even as we pursue our relationship with him, as we pursue our friendship with him, that he is God and we're not. And that doesn't change his love for us at all. 
nor does it change the way that we can love him. It's just a fact that we need to keep in mind. So there we go. That's a little bit of, of covenant. From verse 6 then, as the author says that he is giving us a new covenant, what's to be understood and interpreted by that is new and improved. That the new covenant came along because it was a better covenant. That it was better because it had to be better. The old one wasn't sufficient. Therefore, a new one was required. So the new one is improved, that it is better than the former. And why or how? It's better by virtue, the author says, of better promises. So let's take a a look at that quickly here now. I'm going to try and sum up these better promises in three respects here again. Number one, this new covenant was inclusive. We see that from verse 8, where it says that it included then the tribe of Israel and the tribe of Judah. These tribes had been separated. The ten tribes of Israel had separated from the tribes of Judah, the, the two others. And, and so that was, would have been in the minds of the people then. Like, what do you mean? You're bringing back the two tribes, like Judah and Israel, are going to be reunited in this. And so that would have been a noteworthy for the people then. We're to understand that too, that God is including everyone in this new covenant. And while it seems that he's only speaking here to the Jewish people, and in fact, that's really what's going on. That's his audience. That's his primary audience. So he's speaking to it, to them in those terms. You and I today can also maybe catch a glimpse then or a hint of the fact that where we see throughout the rest of the New Testament that that has been opened up now beyond the Jewish people as well to Gentiles. So God, in, under this new covenant, then was including everyone. So this new covenant was better in that it was inclusive to everyone. What's more? It says that they will all know me. This is God speaking again through Jeremiah. They will all know me from the least to the greatest, which we see in verse 11. Now this again would have been a bit of a mind blow because there was sectors and sections or demographics through the Jewish people that would not have understood that they could know God like the priesthood could have known God. The priests would have dictated to the people about knowing God, what there was to know God and so on and so forth. And they would have had gone through the priests to understand and know God. But now God is saying from the least to the greatest, they will all know me personally. At least those that accept the covenant, that choose to accept that from God. So here in this morning, you and I need to understand that in this new covenant, we are all included. There is no one excluded. It is open and available to everyone. And secondly, we're to understand that there is now no difference between you or I or anyone else. We're all on the same level. I'm standing up here on a platform this morning, but that doesn't make me any better than you or any different than you. You have the ability to understand and know God every bit as much as I do. So another thing that we need to do, church family and friends, is that we need to get out from behind this idea that only the pastor can know. Only the pastor can know God. That I can't, I can't begin to know Him like that. I can't begin... A few years ago, I was sitting in your pew. I was sitting out there. And now I'm standing here. And trust me, nothing has changed other than God called me to this. 
And he's not calling you necessarily to this. I'm not saying that you have to preach next Sunday. You're going to relax. But what I am saying is that there is no excuse now for you or I today. We can all know God, and therefore we need to pursue him. This is a better covenant because God says, I will know you personally, and you will know me as well, like we've been singing about this morning. Secondly, it's a better covenant in that it is eternal, not external. All right? God says, verse 10, that he's going to implant his law on the minds and on their hearts. On their minds and on their hearts. On your mind and your heart. On my mind and my heart. He's going to speak into our world on that level. It's no longer going to be some external code, but it is now going to be a personal knowledge of God himself for each one of us. And how is he going to do this? It's going to be by his spirit. And we don't see that specifically here in this passage. But for the Jewish people then, they would have quickly equated it to Jeremiah's sister prophet Ezekiel, if you will. And in Ezekiel eleven nineteen, it says this, I will give them, again, God speaking, I will give them an undivided heart, an inclusive heart, pulled together, and put a new spirit in them. I will remove from them their heart of stone and give them a heart of flesh. He follows up on, on it again in Ezekiel 36, verse 26. I will give you a new heart and put a new spirit in you. I will remove from you your heart of stone and give you a heart of flesh. This is a better covenant now because God is placing his spirit within us, changing our heart from stone to flesh so that we can then begin to know and understand God personally ourselves. This is a game changer. The people then would have understood that this was a whole new dynamic at work. This is a whole new ball game. We need to understand it as well so that we can stand on it and appropriate it for ourselves today as well. This is different. You and I have the ability, have the opportunity to know God because he has given us his spirit and wants to be known by us in the way that he knows us himself. How is this accomplished? Why is this accomplished? Well, it's, it's done by virtue of the fact that our heart has now been released from the bondage of sin. That through Christ's sacrifice and what he has done, through his one ultimate sacrifice accomplished, then we have now been released from under the bondage of sin, out of the bondage of sin. And the Spirit has come to instruct and guide us. We couldn't accomplish that under the old covenant. We didn't have the moral fortitude. We didn't have the ability as, as Paul said in Romans, we were weakened by the flesh. The old covenant was weakened by the flesh. That which is to say is that we didn't have the capacity to do it. But now we do. And with that then being the case and fully established now as the author points us to this, then we see, we see that God has intervened again on our behalf. That of his own initiative, because of his love, then he's in, intervened in our world one more time in order to accomplish what hadn't been accomplished so far by the old covenant. Number three, 
we see that this is a better covenant because it provides true forgiveness of sin. Forgiveness of their wickedness. So God says, I will forgive their wickedness and remember their sin no more, verse 12. God has always been forgiving. We see that throughout Scripture. But now we see that he's stated explicitly in this new covenant. That we will not just know him by virtue of his character to be forgiving, but we will also understand it because he signed it on the dotted line. From that then, we are to understand that our forgiveness is complete because it is remembered no more. What's more then, we are to understand that our forgiveness comes from God alone by virtue of his grace. It is on no part of ours. We can't work for it. We can't achieve it. We can't accomplish it, you and I. But it comes to us strictly by God's grace out of his love. And that he's initiated it in us by virtue of his spirit that we can't even initiate it on our own. All that we have left to decide then is, am I going to accept or reject this new covenant? And we accept that new covenant by faith, and we'll come to that later in this, in this book as well. In this new covenant, God has taken everything on himself in order to restore for us his, his relationship, the relationship that he wants with us. And finally, in verse 13, the author confirms that by virtue of what he's just unpacked, by virtue of this new covenant that God has just enacted for us, then that the old covenant is now obsolete. It is abolished. It is insufficient and has been replaced by a superior covenant from God. This morning, church friends, Church family, the author's writing for a decision. He's laying out this case not just for academic kicks and giggles. He knows that eternity weighs in the balance for his audience. What's your decision? What's your decision? Let's pray. Father, this morning again, we thank you, God, that by your word, you make yourself known to us. You draw us close to yourself. Lord, that we don't have to guess. We don't have to pretend. We can know. And I pray this morning that we would. That as you lay out your case for us through scripture, that we would recognize the evidence that you're laying down, that we would pick it up. That we would make a choice for you today. Thank you for the gift of your son by whom you're able to extend and offer this new covenant. Help us not to miss it. Help us to choose to accept it. And then help us to walk in it and testify to you because of it. And we ask these things, we pray them now all in Christ's name, for his sake alone. Amen.